Hey, you're not going to bed yet, are you? That's right. It's time for TV Good, Sleep Bad. TV is awesome! Here are your hosts, Daniel Lackey and Elwood Jones. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of TV Good Sleep Bad. My name is Elwood Jones of From the Depths of DVD Hell and, Ch- and Channel Superhero. And I'm joined as always by my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Lackey. Crumsy EJ. Uh, on tonight's show, we've got, an an- we've got an animated double bill, as we'll be looking at an episode of Cyber City Oedo 808, as well as the classic British kids tv show danger mouse Uh, absolutely no contrast there (laughs) whatsoever but obviously i mean how you uh how you doing the slacky on your side of the the pond things are pretty hectic right now in my personal life but i mean it's it's you know i'm still alive i'm not dead clearly that's always always reassuring every day i wake up and i'm still alive that that's a good day as far as i'm concerned Things are pretty good here, you know. I could complain, and, and I probably will complain, but um, yeah. How about with you? Not too bad. I mean, it's been a very bizarre sort of cycle this one has because here in the UK we're between the starts and ends of shows, so it's meant that I've had this sort of cycle where there's been really nothing to watch. Yeah. Um, and now we're coming into this week, and all the shows are coming back. Um, yep. Such as Hunted's coming back. Uh, yeah hunted it's this show where um members of the public are hunted by the police oh 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 i you know there was a spy show with melissa george okay it's on about five years ago the 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 showrunner was frank spotnitz who had done he was on the x-files and he did the first season of man in the high castle um and like i said melissa george was the lead and there were some other people in it like Stephen delane from uh, Game of Thrones, and it did like one season on like Showtime or something. And I was thinking, now that Frank Spotnitz is no longer with Man in the High Castle, and you said Hunt, and it was called Hunted. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> they got that wreck off the ground. Because I know that after they did the first season, it was like too expensive for, maybe it was Cinemax commissioned it, but it was like too expensive. They wanted to do like kind of like a cheaper version set in Berlin, and uh, it never went through. So it was like, whoa, but no. You have let me down. <laughs> no, um, Hunted's um, back for its second season. And basically you have these members of the public who are given 30 days to evade capture. And mm-hmm. they can go anywhere in the UK. But they can't like take boats and like escape over to Ireland or anything like that. They have to basically travel by train or car or on foot. And they have all these supposed like, professional sort of manhunters and ex-police officers and that that have all these different resources, like all the CCTV and drones and God knows what else is available to them to conduct this manhunt. And the first season was really great because we had this doctor who was a self-proclaimed anarchist. And his whole tactic was to escape up to Scotland and then antagonize the hunters. So <laughs> which, is, which is really great. So they basically put in every major 
news publication, have you seen this man? And then uh, he got rather upset when he was the first one captured. <laughs> so um, I'm really interested to see, because obviously this time around we got a cash prize, which we didn't have for the first one. You've got the experience of knowing what happened in the first season. And obviously this time, I've, in the trailer alone, they're showing them hunting them down with dogs. There's a guy in like full camo gear, like what snipers were. Oh, God. Um so I don't know if he's planning on running because anyone who's worn that gear would know it's heavy as hell. Right, right. Uh, you ain't, you ain't going to run like for 30 days carrying that stuff on. It's, it's just not going to happen. Right. Um, unless, unless you're like going to hide in a bush for like 30 days and just hope <laughs> that no one goes near it. Yeah, it's, that's rather exciting. We've got... We, we, I have decided we need a, an American version of that. Okay. Well, the Russians back in the 90s, they did... Um, a, a similar sort of show where the the people in this uh, game show were like they had to steal a car and were <laughs> by the police for real and they had to <laughs> arrest for real they had to like evade capture and I wish I could remember what it was called but it used to always be on like the Chris Tarrant like bizarre world TV clip shows right oh um, wow along with like uh, that Japanese game show where they just tortured people endurance I think it was yeah yeah that one. Yeah, so I would kind of like to see that, but um, I mean, speaking of, but speaking of putting people in uh, awkward situations, I mean, we've got the celebrity version of Ben Grylls' The Island coming back on Sunday. Oh, dear. Um, which I believe the, you had one season of the American one. We've had about four seasons of the British one. Anyone who's not familiar with the show, basically, Bear Grylls... Bear, Bear Grylls is the have-to-drink-my-own-piss guy, right? Yeah, he's like okay. the ex-SES... That, that's the only that's the only thing I know him from is like, well, guess we'll have to drink my own piss memes. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically he puts members of the public uh, on a, a desert island, so to speak, and they have to like film and they have to source their own resources. There's like they have enough water for like two days, and they have to like hunt all their food, source all their own water, and basically survive for I think it's about thirty days. Now, as part of Stand Up to Cancer. They've done a celebrity version, which, start, as I said, starts on Sunday. And uh, it's going to be interesting to obviously see what happens when you put celebrities in this situation. Because it's one thing to be like a volunteer from like the public. But to be like a pandab celebrity and to do probably one of the hardest like reality shows you can possibly do. Right. Because um, they would show these guys on them and they're like dying of malnutrition and stuff. They'd like drop half their body weight and stuff. They're like coming away right. Real skeletons, they have to be put on these uh, diets to ease them back into food. Most of the time, they tend to ignore it and just like eat like two tons of chocolate and wonder why they end up with the shits. But yeah, I'm kind of excited to see where that one obviously goes. And uh, yeah, that starts this week. And uh, tonight, we just had the start of the new season of Ink Master, season seven. So it's uh, if you like Ink Master, it's you know just generally more of the same, but it's probably one of the more better tattoo shows that are out there of the just so many now for some reason we just had this huge obsession with uh, tattoo programs be it tattoo fixing or just bad tattoo programs or just now tattoo competitions uh uh-uh. we're just really on a real kick with it but uh iron tattoo artist <laughs> i mean like what's you obviously been holding your sort of attention uh yeah i've been catching up because uh we're in the same position here as, as you are in the U- in in the u.s where uh, our TV our TV season uh, is just about to get going, 
Um, and we were kind of getting out of the summer season, which for me was dominated by I spent a, a, an unholy amount of time this summer watching celebrity game shows from ABC. The Steve Harvey hosted version of Celebrity Family Feud, um, which, which had some really interesting ones. Unfortunately, Dave Foley of Kids in the Hall did not do as well as I'd hoped in, in one episode. But on another episode, uh, extra skateboarder, pro skateboarder Tony Hawk okay. had his family on. He was, he was actually very good. Along with that came, uh, I think, and Michael, what, I don't remember his, Michael Strahan fronted uh, uh, the $100,000 Pyramid, um, a, a new match game with Alec Baldwin. So that's what I watched mainly over the summer. And now that those are done, you had kind of that month-long dead zone before the new season started. Yeah. Um, so I caught up uh, on, uh, finally caught up the first season of Mr. Robot, which okay. uh, if, 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 Season two is as good as season one. This could be Mr. Robot could be my new favorite show. It's definitely got my favorite soundtrack. Yeah. Um, um, I think Mr. Robot season one is a, such a standout show for Amazon prime to, uh-huh. to have that. My issue with season two is that it kind of goes off the deep end. And I mean, I'm only about, I would say about four episodes in so I don't know whether it's sort of like the long game, uh, what the season, like the first season was. But yeah, I would. I find myself kind of struggling because it sort of set up this idea uh, in the last sort of two two episodes of the first season of what the show's about, and now it seems to be kind. Of feel, it felt very much like it was being crushed under the weight of this idea. Uh huh. I've not actually seen anyone sort of say anything much about season two. I know everyone wanted to talk about season one, but for some reason, season two, no one really wants to, has really said anything. Uh-huh. So I've no idea whether it uh, it pulls it all together or what happens. So uh, I'd be curious to obviously see how it goes when I obviously get back into uh, back into season two. So. so so there's been that. I polished off black books. Uh, I think I mentioned this the last time, I, last episode, I had just finished series two of black books. I had never gotten around to, and I just finished up probably about two weeks ago the third series of Black Books. Absolutely freaking hilarious. Yeah. And then speaking of hilarious, and you know this because you and I discussed this a little bit, uh, I, I finally got around to the first season of Silicon Valley, <laughs> which, oh my God, I, I think Silicon Valley could be my favorite comedy program since the IT crowd. Yeah. It, it really is. I, I just, there was a point in, I think it's the, is it the penultimate or the, 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 the finale, the one where they just, everybody just goes on this gigantic riff on how many hand jobs T.J. Miller can deliver. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the, just, the final one where, where uh, he figures out the compression rate based on how many dicks he can suck at the same time. Yeah, and I just sit here watching this, and it's like everybody's taking it seriously, and I'm like, "Holy shit! This, <laughs> this is this is I I just I don't believe I'm. I, it's like I know this is an HBO show, but I don't believe I'm watching it. And it is a show where I've basically heard of like T.J. Miller. I think is the only main cast member I've ever heard of. I, I had never. I don't know who this Thomas Middleditch is. Martin Starr apparently had been on Freaks and Geeks. Never yeah. watched that, so I have no idea who he is. And it's just, it 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 is it is just a 
an absolutely brilliantly cast show. It really, the guy that played Gregory, you said that he died of lung cancer? Yes, unfortunately he does, um, he died of uh, lung cancer in the middle of filming. And then Mike Judge was like so into his performance that he didn't want to just replace it, bring in another actor to play the role. So I can't remember if it's in the first season or the second season, but his character is essentially has an ending. What does frustrate me, though, is that they obviously give this character an ending and then they essentially bring in another character who's essentially the same, but female. (laughs) At the same time, the person that they bring in is absolutely fantastic and they play it different enough. Uh But you can't help but feel that someone's like put some notes in and it's like, oh, we we really needed this character. Um, so we, we need to find a way to to put this sort of character in there. Uh-huh. It surprises me that a show so spot on about the current climate of uh, the of the tech world would be would come from Mike Judge, the creator of Beavis and Butthead. Right. And I mean, anyone who's obviously listened to seen any interviews with Mike Judge, especially if you listen to uh, Mark Maron's uh, interview with him for the WTF podcast, we know that he's actually a pretty switched on guy and that he only got into animation because claymation took too long to do. Right. Um, and I mean, he was working on like F-16 fighters and stuff like in the uh, Gulf War and he was saying like, with the whole, when Top Gun came out, it was just like this big propaganda movie and stuff and the, yeah. they fudged all the details to say F-16s were used when it was many warthogs. Yeah. Um, and then most of the time, you'd like be sent out to bases to, and they'd like maybe see like an F 16 off in the distance, and that'd be the closest he ever got to working on. But at the uh-huh. same time, all his paperwork and that was coming back saying, yeah, you'd working on an F 16s because this is part of the propaganda machine. Yeah. But um, yeah, he's delivered a truly phenomenal series, and I think it's one of my favorite shows currently. I know that whenever we have like a box set of it come out here in the UK, that. I just I would just sit down and I would binge away at that series. Uh-huh. And it, it's great, the natural progression as it's gone on series by series. Um, right. Just seeing how these characters grow, how the the idea of Pied Piper grows, and it's been very natural over the course of the seasons. And uh, you kind of, you're rooting for these underdogs who are basically the smartest guys um, in a world where everyone's supposed to be super smart, but basically everyone's a moron. Right. Because they kind of believe their own hype when you look at Gavin. Even to an extent, T.J. Miller's character, whose name I don't remember. I, I honestly never thought I'd see T.J. Miller do a role where he basically just spent most of the time talking about how awesome he was and, and could sell it. Yeah. But that was the, that was amazing. I love the, the part where Big Head's basically brought in to be this because of his association with Pied Piper, they basically give him all these ridiculous promotions and that when they first off, um, cause they can't fire him. So they use this Japanese business motivation method where basically oh, oh, he's sent yeah, on the yeah. roof, but because yeah. they're Americans, they don't feel any sort of shame. So they just see it as an excuse to slack off. Yeah. They just basically sit up on the roof all day. Um, <laughs> and it kind of reminded me of my sort of like last days when I was, uh, working at the, the company, uh, the company I was at previously and uh-huh. all our contracts were being transferred over to this other place so we were basically required to sign on but not do any work so we just basically sat around playing Scrabble for seven hours a day uh-huh. and it was sort of like 
are we supposed to feel some sort of shame or something? Is this like the same principle as the guys on the roof? We're just we're supposed yeah. to feel some sort of like shame in our performance, but it was like no, just come in and play Scrabble for seven hours. So right, but uh, um, yeah, Silicon Valley, great series. If if you haven't watched Silicon Valley, definitely watch it. It's oh, great. definitely, definitely, it gets the uh, definitely gets the lucky seal of approval. Amazing show, amazing. The other thing I've been kind of like binging on classic Doctor Who, so I've been like kind of just watching like. Uh, gotten a whole new like stack of dvds uh trying to fill up the holes i've only i think i've only got 20 more to go until i get everything that's released on dvd and then of course and then of course the bbc recently announced that they're doing a uh uh a completely animated version of um one of the missing the entirely missing patrick trotten stories the power of the dollar which is which is really cool and i hope that does is a possible indicator of um, there was there was a period in which they were doing like the incomplete stories, and then they would get like they they did like um like the Reign of Terror uh, for the uh, Tenth Planet and the Ice Warriors. They would animate with the audio because they've got even though the episodes are missing, people would record the audio as it was broadcast. So they would animate you know the animation to come along with the audio. Um, but this does kind of seem to hold out that perhaps. Uh, the BBC, uh, BBC, um, or at least whoever is in charge, I guess worldwide, is interested in seeing if there's any um, interest in in getting the fully animated ones for the ones that aren't even the ones that are completely missing or mostly missing in the archive. And there's a lot of um, legendary stories, you know, like Daleks' master plan, evil of the Daleks, uh, Marco Polo, uh, the massacre, and so forth um, that that kind of fall under that. So I've been watching a lot of that, a lot of Patrick Trout and stuff, a lot of Tom Baker stuff. Uh, so that's pretty much what I've been up to. What about you? Okay. I mean, before we obviously go into my, I just obviously have to check something. Because this is a rumor I heard like a while ago. And I thought I'd throw it out to you being the Doctor Who fan here. And yeah. that's that Doctor Who was originally intended as sort of like a history program for kids. Right. And this is why in the first episode, he goes back and visits cavemen. Right. The unearthly child. Now... By the second story, we meet the Daleks, and that story was more popular than the Caveman story. So yeah. they changed the format so that it was no longer a show about history. It became about him having fantastical adventures. Is there any truth to this? That really, honestly, the idea of Doctor Who being the show, of, with be the monsters being the focus, that really didn't come until the Patrick Troughton era. And in particular, if you look at the William Hartnell areas, and even even into uh, you know the late day, like the late ep- stories of the Patrick of the uh, William Hartnell era, you still do have these stories which you can consider to be like the pure historicals, where they go back into various you know uh, points in history. And there's really other than that they have a time machine. There is no science fiction element whatsoever. Mm. You know, I mean, even as like I said, they would they they would do stories like the massacre, which uh, you know took place in I think pre pre revolutionary France. They did you know a revolutionary France episode. They did actually the third story, the one that came after the Daleks. They went and met Marco Polo. You know, there was another one. The only uh, pure historical that Troughton did uh, was the Battle of Culloden, uh, which was I think part of the Jacobite Revolution. But yeah, it, it really Doctor Who was an expensive show. It was always intended to kind of mix science fiction with history. You know, there 
there was always this kind of idea that you would you would have like a story about history and then you would get a story about a, a science a more science fictional story and the idea always was you would alternate them but uh you know a lot of people a lot of uh, the, the, you know the first story the caveman story really didn't impress a whole lot of people didn't really get much in the ratings and it really is to an extent the daleks that that saved doctor who because uh that that's what got that's what really seemed to uh you know um appeal to the kids the kids liked uh the young children liked running around the playground with their arms outstretched screaming exterminate <laughs> and and once that happened you know and then you know you get into the i mean it's just from that point on you know the i, I mean in retrospect you know, in retrospect, a lot of people like the old Hartnell historicals, but they were eventually phased out because it was basically thought that that wasn't what kids wanted to watch. Kids wanted to watch, you know, monsters. Yeah, yeah. So. I think the Dot 2 project I would kind of like to see would be if they started adapting the new Dot 2 novels, uh, the uh, ones that came after the Sylvester McCoy era. Right, um, right. Around yes. the same sort of time. Um, yeah, the adventures. Yeah, just so we could see things like uh, Combat Rock, where Dot Who meets the cannibals. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the stories, stories I would like to see them adapt in some form or another, but I think Dot Who's now too family wholesome these days to uh, venture yeah. into that territory. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm actually, I, I was reading it for a while, but uh, I had to put it down, but I was reading, actually, I did pick up, a, I've picked up the new adventures at used bookstores and stuff. And I was reading one by called transit, uh, which was by Ben Aronovich who had done the, the McCoy he had written remembrance of the Daleks, which is the one that takes place in 63, uh, the McCoy era, that one. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's got a scene in which a woman, I think drinks some water and brings some water to taste semen out of her mouth. And, um, I'm sitting here like yeah, this would never fly on on. I don't even. This would never. I don't. That would. That's something that's like Torchwood level. That's not like yeah. They did do now. They did do an. They did do an adaptation back in the David Tennant years. They did do an adaptation of one of the novels, the the Human Nature one, where uh, the Doctor went back to like pre World War One Britain uh, and turned himself into a human. And taught it like uh, kind of like a, and a sort of Eaton style, um, you know, high class. Yeah. Uh, I guess they're called public schools there, where uh, you know part of the whole thing is just you know to, to train tomorrow's leaders today, where like half of the next half of the cabinet from like fifty years on would have all been in this class, and he was a teacher there. They they adapted that for the show, and it turned out pretty well. It also is maybe wonder because we I think it was during the Sylvester McCoy years we obviously had some of the darkest stuff coming out and I remember those ones absolutely terrifying me as a kid and I think that was why I was always kind of disappointed when it came back not only the fact that they employed Billy Piper to be the bloody assistant right. um, but the fact that it was just so hammy but yeah but what can you expect this is modern BBC you know yeah but. Um, I I, I'd like to see, I'd like to see, like, a more, I guess, a subdued tone taken, because, you know, um, 
uh, with, with in the future. But you know, I I don't know if that'd apply. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's what people want to watch. To be honest, I mean, it's what I think a lot of more diehard Doctor Who fans would like to see. But I mean, diehard Doctor Who fans are only a part, a fraction of the the audience, and it's got to have a. I mean, it's still. My understanding, it's still kind of like a linchpin of Saturday nights, even if the scheduling is a little bit more erratic than it used to be. I think I tapped out Doctor Who long, so the time I got the new ones. I, w- I still watch the classic ones, but uh, the new right. series holds holds nothing for me, and Torchwood is just kind of just a bad joke. Yeah, John Barrowman's going around saying he wants to get Torchwood back, and uh, you know, Stephen Moffat's blocking it, and I'm like, I remember thinking to myself, who who the hell really wants Torchwood to come back? Yeah. I mean, Torchwood, like the first season was horrible, the second season was a moderate improvement, but still pretty dire. Okay, yes, Children of Earth was really, 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 really good, and they followed it up with Miracle Day. <laughs> I didn't even bother finishing Miracle Day. Yeah, I. Dear- God. As soon as I realized that Gwen Cooper wasn't going to die anytime soon, I just stopped watching. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and it just basically, you can tell the like, oh, we're doing the adult version of Doctor Who, so we use lots of bad language and sexual references right. and stuff, and we'll make Captain Jack bisexual so he can hump everything in sight. And I think, yeah, the last one that I really enjoyed was the special that they did with the three Doctors trying to get onto the reunion. Oh God, yeah, the the five-ish doctors, yeah, yeah, that was really good. That was I loved to. I, I actually turned that on and and watched it a, a couple weeks ago. That <laughs> really, I always thought that was absolutely. There's just so many little moments in there that I love. Peter Davison signing and getting irritated by the uh, the, the 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 fan who's got the Tom Baker T-shirt. You know, stuff like that. John John Barrowman's you know huge secret that he's really straight and has you know two kids. You know, just all this stuff like, you know, just brilliant stuff like that. And it really, really shows. I, I thought I'm, Peter Davison, I guess, I, I, in particular, I just had this brilliant sense of comedic timing. Oh, definitely. And Sylvester McCoy is a sort of very natural uh, comic. Yeah, Colin Baker is, I never really cared for him as a doctor, but I loved him in that. Oh, yeah. This is rampant egotism. Some live television. How bad can calling Tom Baker be? <laughs> Then you have John Colshaw doing his uh, dead riggers impersonation. Hello, dearies. I'm stuck in the sodding time vortex again. <laughs> but, uh, Features even more of me. <laughs> it's brilliant. It really, it is, really is uh, probably one of the best things to happen to the new Doctor series in like a long I, I, time. I, I would readily watch like uh, an apartment an apartment, like a, a roommate sitcom with Peter Davison and Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy. Well, the uh, the old doctors is waiting to be invited onto a reunion special. Yeah, Peter Davison constantly bugging David Tennant. You know, <laughs> for myself though, it's been bizarre because everything I've watched has been sort of like documentary and real life reality sort of based. One of the shows I forgot to mention when we were talking about new shows though, uh, that's The Jail, Thirty Days In, which is returning this week as well. Um, okay. We talked about that on some of our earlier episodes. Basically, they take these everyday people and uh, put them into a real work in jail and uh, basically see how they cope. Um, they, they pretty much fail to, from what I understand. Some of them, they survived really well. There was uh, the stay-at-home mum, and everyone thought she would like quit, but she managed to make it to the end. Um, uh-huh. You got the teacher, who everyone sure was like on drugs or something. 
who basically was being targeted by the inmates. So he got himself yeah. put into isolation and then decided he was going to just eat nothing but crap um, and then got himself constipated and made it so they had to be removed. Um, and then basically they spent the rest of the series tearing into him. Brilliant. Um, but yeah, that uh, obviously comes back. But uh, as for what I've been watching, I mean, I've just finished the second season of Married at First Sight. Okay. Uh, it's this reality show where basically these free men and free women have signed up to marry a complete stranger at first sight. And they've been matched up through, you know, the various science and relationship people. And uh, they basically have have this uh, set, set period, I think it's like three months, to be married to this person and to try and make their marriage work. And at the end, they have to decide if they want to stay together or get divorced. And, it, uh-huh. you know, it's fascinating to, to watch. I mean, it's a situation I was at one point considering myself to do a blind marriage. Yeah. Um, through the site, um, through Benrick. Benrick at uh, one point were offering to do, doing their own version of arranged marriages where they would match you up with someone. And I know there's uh, obviously the Moonies who also do match yeah. up uh, and that. So I don't know I, if being matched up by Benrick is as bad as being matched up by a religious sect. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that was just an interesting period. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, the series is really great. It's on all four here in the UK. So you can watch uh, all three seasons, the US one, you can watch the UK one, and you can watch the Australian one. So uh, there's plenty to enjoy there. The documentary series I really did enjoy, though, was um, X, the generation that changed the world. Yeah. Uh, which is a six-part documentary series uh, narrated by Christian Slater, a man of the moment. Uh-huh. And it basically charts the history of Generation X and highlights key figures and and how they basically changed the world. So people like Barack Obama, um, Steve Jobs, and like right. the creation of Apple. Um all these sort of like uh, key figures. I mean, they they chart, they mark Julian Assange as being uh-huh. a key Gen X, Gen X figure, and uh-huh. basically uh, they're like saying that when he came out and stuff, we were all kind of disappointed because he was just not the guy we figured he was going to be. He was some some scruffy guy, and now he's just some scruffy guy in house arrest. Yep. But uh, yeah, if you get chance to uh, to watch it, it's a really fascinating series, and it's bizarre because I'm. 83 so i'm essentially generation y i believe yeah so i'm two years out but i was thought i was a gen xer but i guess i'm more post mtv generation yeah, you're a millennial i can't be a millennial i don't see myself as millennial though because millennial i saw as being like you know these kids from 2000 onwards no they're uh they don't have a gen that generation doesn't have a a, a name yet i think the generation um Generate, uh, <laughs> oh. yeah. Now, your most, I think, most general definitions of millennial tend to basically go somewhere between, like, 80, like, 80 to, like, the early 90s. Yeah. So um, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, being, seven, you know, from 73, I'm, uh, that makes me, you know, basically kind of like tail end. Of Generation X, but hey, your your generation, I, I you you're born in '83. Uh, you're born the same year as Edward Snowden, I think. So there you go. When they talk about how important your generation was, <laughs> and have that documentary. You'll have Edward Snowden. Is it Generation Y was a difficult, difficult one because essentially we'd 
been given all the tools, but we didn't know what to do with them. Yeah. Um, so I don't know when they obviously do the generation, why the generation that did, you know, the generation that sound its ass, or whatever they're going to call it. But yeah, I don't know what they're going to say about generation Y when we do the retrospective of, of my, obviously my generation, because it's weird. It goes generation Y and then it goes generation A, apparently. Yeah. Um, why is there no generation Z? I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a modern history piece. I, I thought it was uh, it was really quite fascinating. Um, and on the trash end of the scale, still watching Are You The One? They managed to lose uh, lose uh, part of their money because they managed to not identify anyone's being correct because they have no system. And it's got one episode to go, and they so far match three people. So uh, it's not looking hopeful for them that they're going to win what's left of their millions. So... Uh, but uh, you know you want to watch that. Go and hang out with the MTV kids, Lucky. Yeah, yeah, that MTV yeah. kids. But uh, we've got MTV Classic coming soon, I believe, so we can all watch like music videos. Um, no, it's like a it's a channel oh. where we can watch like Aeon Flux and old Real World episodes and stuff. Oh, okay, Aeon Flux. Yeah, I, I could go for like an all, uh, but I own the Aeon Flux box set. Yeah. So, um. And I should pick up the Daria box set sometimes. Daria is slightly, like slightly after my time, but really, I, I think Daria is probably about. It, it really is probably the most accurate representation of the American high school experience, at least as how from how I saw it. Yeah, Daria is very much a representation of of my era, um, uh-huh. because we're obviously. We're sort of in that sort of coming out of that grungy sort of era, which I guess it kind of represents um, that disillusionment and, right. and general cynicism um, yeah. about society as a whole. Yeah, and it's it, it, yeah. Dario, in many ways, is a forerunner to. It's a forerunner to Ghost World, uh-huh. and as I've said before, you can pretty much chart the evolution of like Enid and Rebecca in Ghost World because you start with Welcome to the Dollhouse yeah the Todd Sullivan's picture then we also enter into high school which is Daria then mm-hmm. we graduate high school and that's Ghost World and if you wanted to go one further you could then say oh when she goes off to art school um, and look at art school confidential right um, so you can obviously have those sort of four stages of of uh, the of the Daria evolution there I guess yeah but, um, yeah, I mean, that's about it for myself. As I said, it's been a really short, bizarre sort of cycle. I mean, there's lots of exciting things coming up. I mean, we've got the new Westworld coming Westworld, up. We've got the new Westworld coming up. we got, uh, I, I don't know if it's going to be over there, but the new Jerk Gently show with uh, Elijah Wood. Uh, BBC America's producing it. Um, I'm trying to think what else I'm interested in. I'm interested in the new Kiefer Sutherland show. Um, uh, they're called uh, Designated Survivor. There's a new time travel show called Timeless, I think. Yeah. That we're producing. Um, trying to think. There's, I, I know there's got to be one or two. Black Mirror is coming back in October. It is, and it's going to be on Netflix yeah. and 12 yep. episodes long. Yeah, Charlie Brooker or Booker, whatever his name is, he made a deal with Netflix. So it's like, wow. So. I don't know how this is going to relate, because obviously before he did it through Channel 4. Uh-huh. So I don't know whether Channel 4 are going to have the TV rights or whether it's just going to be a Netflix exclusive. 
Right. Um, I'm not too sure, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. What obviously comes up. In the meantime, I mean, we've obviously got The Eternal Humans, which I uh-huh. still felt was like a spiritual sort of spin-off to that show. Um, right. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm excited for more Black Mirror, definitely, so. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really stoked because Black Mirror is probably my favorite, my favorite show so far this decade. Probably would even even beat out uh like Hannibal, or The Americans. So that's a big claim. It is. Yeah, you heard it first. Black you heard Mirror, it here. First. Black Mirror better than Hannibal. Better than Hannibal. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously that wraps up what we've been watching. I guess we had nothing to do now, but obviously move on to the first of our selections uh, this evening, which is Cyber City Weedo 808. This is one of my selections, and it's a series that I remember watching back in the late 90s. I'd say it was about 99 to 2000 that I first came across this series, and it was originally released as an OVA, an original visual animation, and back in the sort of mid-90s, they, it was very popular that you would release these sort of mini-series onto, onto VHS of anime series. So, And this particular series, Cyber City Weirdo 808, was released as a part of a, a free series set called the Cyberpunk Collection through Manga Entertainment. The other two series that was released on site was AD Police and the really grotesque uh, and Splatter, gorehound favorite, um, Geno Cyber. Even now, Geno Cyber is hard watching for myself. I, it's not going easier with uh, with age, but Cyber City 808 is a fantastic little show, and it's one that's had something of a local following. And it's now that we've got such a big drive in anime, especially with things such as Crunchyroll um, and all these sort of series coming out, that you have a lot of older anime fans in particular going back and wanting to watch these older series because of how different they are because being an older series it's high in violence swearing um, and gratuitous rock soundtracks as we'll probably go into a bit later but the series itself is set in set in the future and basically you have these three convicts who are serving time in a space penitentiary and that offered a chance to reduce their sentences by taking on essentially suicide police cases. Um, with each case that they serve, they will reduce, have time taken off their sentence. So very similar in a way to obviously what Suicide Squad did, what we've seen with things like The Dirty Dozen. This is I, my, my, my response to that was going to be absolutely nothing then like Escape from New York. Yeah, I mean, again, we, you can draw the Escape from New York uh, comparison, the fact that they've all got the explosive collars, so yeah. if they don't complete their missions in a set time, they get their head blown off. Uh-huh. This first episode that we're going to be looking at, um, it's titled Virtual Death, or if you're in the in Japan or the States, um, it also went under the title of Time Bomb or Memories of the Past. And in this one, we've got uh, Sengoku, who's sort of like the gunslinger of the trio. Um, he's sent to basically rescue these people who are trapped in Oedo's largest skyscraper after the central computer gets mysteriously taken over and basically locks the tower down. So he's basically sent in to find out what's going on and to stop the building from collapsing because 
as it as he gets closer and closer to finding out who's responsible for the computer system that's in the building starts like turn off the gravity field so the builder starts clapped it taps into the military mainframe which this building's for some reason or another has been wired into so we've got a giant space laser that's threatening to blow the building up as well and this series on the whole is really great because it's a short little episodes about 45 minutes long but they're just packed as i said there's this packed with action uh foul language and gratuitous rock soundtracks i mean what more do you really need from your it's, anime fix? I would say this is, I, I think, minute per minute, the like the largest, like the most compressed ratio of power chords <laughs> um, I've ever heard in anything. I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking, like, yeah, yeah, heavy metal ain't got nothing on you, baby. <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, we have a scene where he enters into a into an air duct, and it's accompanied by a gratuitous rock solo and it's sort of like, did we really need to emphasize any or create any sort of action sort of atmosphere with this particular action? Yes! Yes, <laughs> it just gives it this sort of I don't know, this sort of grandiosity this sort of um, bombastic thing to go along with it, which is actually really really in keeping with the uh, with I, I think to me it was it actually helped make the tone of the piece. I, I, I I'm sitting here thinking to myself, it really come you know brings me back into the kind of like you know uh, I'm it's the '80s and I'm a kid, um, and this is so '80s. It's this is so overdriven, overprocessed, overproduced guitar you know <laughs> guitar solos. This is like instrumental, like Ingve Malmsteen type stuff. You know, and it's just so 80s. All the, the character design is 80s and, the, you know, the ideas are 80s. And it's it just, it, it, it's an old style anime, you know. It, it's minimal, I mean, you've got kind of like your minimal mouth animation. There's this great scene where where the, 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 the character's handler at the beginning of the episode is, is, is deep, is briefing the, the three characters on their mission. And three characters are the three convicts or whomever are talking back to the handler and you see them in silhouette. None of their lips are moving. So you have no idea who's who or who's talking, you know, that's that sort of thing. When people jump, they kind of fly through the air and perspective perspective shifts. And it's just, you know, it's, it's his old style anime and there's, you know, a little bit of blood and a lot of violence yeah. and, bullets and a gigantic skyscraper that's probably about the size of the planet it needs a, a it needs a gravity it needs a gyroscopic stabilizer just to keep from toppling over you know i i mean you know you got the star wars laser platform you've got you've got my favorite bit which is this you know, kind of like deranged architect who's holding himself into a, like the main control room and, you know, something in this building has it out for him. It keeps flashing the words, kill you <laughs> on all of the monitors. You know, this is so over the top. You were telling me before we started recording that the this is the U.S. version that we watched, right? Or the U.K. No, version. They, we watched the U.K. version. Um, because the U.S. and J Japanese version have more like a J-pop soundtrack, you're That's saying, right. right? And I, I can't, I guess I can imagine that sort of working from a sort of compare and contrast. It was, okay, this is kind of daft. But to me, it just kind of just drove, the you know, having all these 
these the, the sort of hair metal riffs, this just blatant riff monitoring, drove everything over the top and, and really just kept things moving, kept you in the moment, or at least me, kept me in the moment. Yeah. You know, it, it, it didn't, it, it you know, it, even if there's a slower bit when um, uh, I don't remember the name of, like, kind of like the gunslinger, like the main, the, the focus of the episode when he's talking to the architect and he's getting the backstory, you know, that really kind of helps just, again, just propel things and move things forward. It's not subtle at all, but I, I think subtlety is really the enemy of this story. You don't want subtlety. This is big. It's bombastic. It's it's a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> It's 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 got that sort of you know a lot of the, a lot of older anime like these eighties nineties anime had this sort of kind of almost like kind of like a naughtiness about it okay. you know to to non to I don't know if you ever felt this but I always kind of felt this when watching stuff like this this is something I shouldn't be seeing this is you know this is what Japanese think the Japanese think the cartoons are for you know this sort of forbidden thing and you know. Uh, again, it kind of like I, when I made the reference to the heavy metal movie uh, that did have kind of like the same kind of feeling as that, you know, yeah. um, I'll, I enjoyed the hell out of this. And I thought, you know, normally I can't stand that sort of <laughs> normally that I can't stand it. But to hear, I'm like, wow, this really I thought it was like one of the standout. It just combined with the whole and it made the mood. It made the atmosphere. Yeah, I think. Mean- when it came to watching anime as uh, as a young adult, the only time I was ever really so embarrassed by it is if it involved sex and nudity. That's that's when it made brought those sort of questions like, "Am I supposed to be watching this?" So things like Mad Bull, which is full of uh, nudity and sex, and that which uh-huh. is like Legend of the Overfiend, like one of those notorious hentai um, yeah. titles. And as I've, we've mentioned obviously before, in, in when we talk about anime, is that these titles obviously came over here with very little background to them. Right. So unless you had like a copy of the anime encyclopedia, um, there's very minimalistic information apart from like fan sites on the internet. There's no like Wikipedia so you can get any research. And you don't have the reference that when you look at things like Legends of the Overfiend or like Hentai in particular, it's the way of getting around Japanese censorship, which obviously frowns on genitalia. Um, so whereas you can't show a penis, but you can certainly show a tentacle. Um, and this is why Japanese animation is so rife with like demons and tentacles and schoolgirls there in compromising positions. Right. Because it's able to get around it. And these things would obviously be shown in like, in like love hotels and, uh, and, and Japanese brothels as, as a form of pornography. Um, I don't know why they had to be so hyper-violent for this purpose as well, but, you know, each to their own. But these were, like, obviously the titles that were being really sort of heavily pushed for some reason. Uh, it was, like, those sort of titles. And the sort of cyberpunk, the very sort of sci-fi sort of titles. So you have things like this and, like, Akira, Ghost in the Shell. Akira, Pac-Dor. yeah. Akira was really kind of like the... I, I mean, once you had graduated from... You know, once you had graduated from Speed Racer to Macross or Battletech, yeah. the next logical stepping stone from there was like Akira. Well, this is the thing. Akira was produced, what, 88? And I think so. 87, 88. Late 80s. Yeah. And it's still considered the benchmark which all anime is measured against. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, this particular series, it was uh, directed by Yoshiaki uh, Kawajiro. I apologize for any mispronunciations there. Now, he should be a very familiar name for anime fans because he not only gave us this series, but he was also responsible for giving us Ninja Scroll, Wicked City, Demon City Shinjuku. Um, later, I mean, he did uh, the... Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. He did a segment in the Animatrix. Um, he did the segment uh, segments uh, World Record and Program. He was responsible for those as the director, um, and he also worked as the screenwriter for Zumi Two. Uh, so he's really sort of a key figure, in, especially in like the '80s anime scene, as he sort of established this style of action anime, especially with things like Ninja Scroll. Ninja Scroll. Is still one of my favorite action animes and uh-huh. it's one that even though we had a series for and it, again it was directed um it was developed by uh Kirijari, it never sort of tapped in and even with like the riffs of things such as like ninja resurrection they just never seem to capture that that wonderful zaniness the colorful characters uh that we obviously uh-huh. had with that ninja scroll and it's what i love about cyber city um we do 808 we've even if you just like focus on our free sort of convict police officers here, we've obviously got Singu, who's like our gunslinger. We've got Gogu, who's our uh, mohawked hacker. Um, we've got Benton, who's the transvestite hitman. So it's a colorful group, and each of them have their own episode, uh-huh. um, even though they will appear in each other's episode. Uh, this is obviously Singu's episode, and it's interesting because he's the only one who's given a robot sidekick. Yeah. And Varsus, who he spends most of the episode sort of arguing with. And he's Varsus is essentially this clunky R2-D2 sort of character. If you need like someone to hack into a computer system or to open a grate or just provide you with some muscle, he's like the girl. But he's just this lumbering filing cabinet on wheels. Yeah. That basically spends his time being, uh, being shouted at abused. I mean, we have this wonderful, uh, I mean, just an example of how great the dialogue is. Uh, at the end, we have Tsungu who says, go fuck yourself, Gugu. Listen, you miserable good-for-nothing piece of tin-plated scrap iron. Either you reduce my sentence, I'm going to fucking break you up. I'm gonna, But first, I'm going to take you and shove you right up Howard Gass's ass where you goddamn well belong. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the great thing. And we've got lines such as the opening where he where we see Sengoku and he's trying to apprehend this convict and his opening line is, is way past your bedtime motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite, I think my favorite line, I, I think it's right. At, I know it's right at the end. My, I don't remember if it was the, the best. I don't remember if it was like the very last line of the episode, but it was Sengoku. And so I can do, I guess there's a, a character that that's supposed to be a, a fellow cop or like an actual cop. And she's like, I guess a love interest or something. He's definitely got a thing for him. And they're talking back at his uh, apartment or somebody's apartment. And they're this whole thing. It's like, why don't you ask me out? And it's like, well, you're a cop and I'm a crook and I've got all this stuff. And, and he just goes on as a guy and I'm broke. <laughs> just, I just, I just, I, and the way the dub actor, the way the voice artist just delivered and I'm broke. I just love that. And it's, that's the other thing I kind of liked about this. He's got these classical, like dubbing voices. I mean, these are like the dub, the voices you hear in like every 80s dub of every 80s anime. You know, and it's, it's got this guy who talks like this. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, Shingu is um, voiced by Stuart Milligan in the UK uh-huh. version. And, I mean, you may recognize him, really, because he played uh, Colonel Stark in Dot 2 animation Dreamland. Okay. Um, he also played the U.S. President Nixon in uh, the Dot 2 episodes The Impossible, Osh- the Impossible Astronaut that? and Day of the Moon. Oh, that guy. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he's done various other bits of... Uh, Fair bits of uh, voiceover work. I mean, he's in Rocky Legends, in Farscape the Game, and Pac-Man World 3. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's, he's done bits and pieces. He's one of those few voice actors who've done live action um, as well. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I think he perfectly, perfectly <laughs> captures the the thuggish nature of Sengoku. Um Basically, I mean... Out of the free, he basically doesn't want to be there. And mm-hmm. he doesn't give a damn about any rules he's supposed to be following. So such as the fact that he admits that he's hungover, even though he's not supposed to be drinking. But he doesn't care. All he, yeah. He's got this weird loyalty. And I think it's basically the fact that he's backed into a corner and knows that if he doesn't do these jobs, that he's going to get his head blown off. Yeah. Um, that he obviously does it because otherwise he'd. But in the meantime, he sees like no reason to sort of like play against play against his type. He's just basically there to do the job, and he does it as fuggishly as possible. But he'll get the right. job done. When we have the end scene, where we obviously find this, uh, okay, we'll just say spoiler alert now. Um, when we find the supposedly dead architect, and he's now wired into the mainframe. Yeah, zombie cyber zombie. Yeah, and he's able I love to. That predict um, which way that Tsunguku's going to go. So he basically realizes he's going to walk through and he's like override this. <laughs> yeah. He's just such a badass. And it's, uh, it just makes me sad that we never got more than these three episodes. It, uh, another one of my favorite bits is when he's going off, you know, he's gotten the, the, the backstory from the guy who's holed up in the com- command center who was one of the other designers of the building and there's this you know, a 30-year spoiler here, people. Um, you know, he, 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 killed the, um, he killed the other designer of the building, the other architect, and now the, that architect, the dead one, is some sort of zombie, and it's become one with the computer system, and Sengoku is going to track this down, and the handler is basically saying, okay, well, we figured out that the building wants to kill the guy you just left, <laughs> so go back and kill him, and Sengoku's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Fuck you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I want to know what's going on here. <laughs> you know, and it was just like, whatever it is that he's told to do at any given time, he's going to do the exact opposite, which a, a lot of the time I find that igno- annoying, but here I find it just kind of refreshing, really. He's just a guy who under, you know, he's a bad guy. He has absolutely no fucking illusions that he's a hero, you know, He's just gonna, you know, he's got to do this shit because he's been roped into it. He's on the ropes. He's he's in. They got him over a barrel, and he's gonna do it. But he's gonna do it his way, and he's not gonna take any shit from people. Yeah. You know, he's gonna. And if you know, if you give him an order, he's gonna do the exact opposite, just to basically piss you off. Well, I mean, he's facing a three hundred year sentence. I mean, that's a lot of parking violations. Uh, <laughs> get, from his first. Uh... The first capture he does at the beginning of the episode, he gets a mere three years off his sentence. So yeah. You get the feeling he's going to be there for a while, but because he goes against orders, he ends up with an additional 10 years on his sentence by the end. So essentially, he's no further along by the end of the episode. It's like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. 
and you got the feeling that he's probably going to die in the line of duty before he ever clears his sentence off. Well, that they're all going to die in the line of duty before they ever clear the sentence off. I mean, that's that's their entire job. That's the whole the risk they take. You know, this is this is the stuff that you can't actually send like actual cops or whose lives actually have meaning and are important and are not just, you know, <laughs> I mean, you don't want to go to send them off to get killed. If you're going to send off on some suicide mission, probably not going to work. No, you go and you go and send these scumbags, you know, that are in prison and, and, and dangle a little carrot in front of their faces and say, yeah, OK, yeah, we'll knock we'll knock three years off your 300 year sentence for whatever it is you did. <laughs> if you go and you do as you know, go kill these other badass criminals who are as bad as you are, you know, yes. and, and all these other things that, you know, are, are too difficult for our actual trained officers who we've put money in and they're like upstanding members of the community and all that. Yeah, the thing about this particular episode, though, the other two, I felt that they run the right amount of time. But this one, I felt that you could have took this episode and very easily turned it into a feature. Oh, you could have. And I would have happily happened to watch more of it. Model for that. This had a, a wonderful Escape from New York vibe. I don't know if it was deliberate, but yeah, this would definitely make a great actual feature-length film. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, that's <laughs> right. I mean, I've. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the sort of story we've seen numerous times before. I mean, you said it's Escape from New York. It's the Daily Dozen. It's, you know, it's the convicts on the suicide mission. Right. Um, I mean, this is pre-Suicide Squad, but it's all the same sort of principle here. But yeah, there's something still very fresh about this, and I think it's the fact that we have these three very, three very different characters um, who all have their own different skill sets, and Obviously, over the course of the three episodes, we get to see exactly what each of them can do and their own sort of motivations. So uh-huh. it's kind of nice the fact that each episode sort of focuses on each of the trio um, right. and gives them their own sort of time to shine, so to speak. But yeah, with this one, it's, this particular episode, it, I think it's whether it's just the fact it's Sengoku and his general badassness and the enjoyableness of watching a badass go to work. Yeah. Uh, that made me want to obviously see more of it. Um, it's it's hard to say, but the pacing and just the plotting of this episode is absolutely fantastic. And uh, yeah, it kind of makes me uh, sad that we only got these three episodes. Uh, but you can uh, still obviously still pick them up. It's not one of those old titles that kind of disappeared when the rights got lost. So I believe at the moment it is currently through Madman Entertainment uh, that you can get you can pick up this uh, this set. But um, if you've not obviously seen a Weedo HOA, I can highly recommend it. I mean, like, is there anything else you want to obviously talk about this one, Tom? And I broke. No, not really. No? <laughs> if you uh, have yet to check out the Cyberpunk collection, um, a Weedo 808 is one of the best starting points. I mean, if you're, if you're new to anime, this is a really nice, gentle start. There's nothing too over the top yes it's got violence it's got some bad language but you know there's nothing too shocking here it's not high art like ghibli but at the same time it's uh not completely out there like a uh, legend of the other fiend so uh yeah and it's also not and, and, and that is perhaps the, the the best like pull quote out of this this whole discussion of it oh, yeah. wait 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 oh. not completely out there like legend of the Overfiend. <laughs> And it's not crammed with so much damn fan service. 
there's only so much schoolgirl panties that one person really needs to see in a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, possibly. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I broke. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> Which sounds even worse. We'll be back with more perversion. When we return, though, we will be returning on a lighter note as we'll be looking at our second selection for this evening as we will be checking out 1981's Danger Mouse. A good show, dear. Why haven't you seen Jaws? I've seen Finding Nemo. That's close enough, right? Why haven't you seen The Usual Suspects? Because I already know who Kaiser Soze is. I can't believe you haven't seen Videodrome. What? Has anyone seen Videodrome? Okay, okay, okay. How about I start a podcast where someone will introduce me to one of these great movies I've never seen before, and in return, I'll have them watch a superhero movie, film-wise. The Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. Find it on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. And we're back. I'm Stu, joined as always by my uh, co-host, partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Lackey. Hello. In the first half, we obviously looked at Cyber City Widow 808. Uh, we're now on to our second selection of the evening, which is chosen by yourself, Blackie. And that yes. is Danger Mouse from 1981. Yeah, so um, Danger Mouse. Uh, one of the, the, the neat things about being an American kid and like eight years old in the mid, the, like the early to mid 80s America is we have this case, and if you had cable, that was the really cool thing about it, was that you had like this, this station called Nickelodeon. And and this was in the days before, like, cable companies would come, cable broadcasters were, like, known for their original programming. So uh, Nickelodeon was, like, obviously they were, like, kids-oriented state. I think there's, like, a, a British version of Nickelodeon. Yeah. But um, they, they, they had all this wonderful stuff that they imported from other countries, like the, the green slime motif, which they continued to use for, like, decades after they'd actually stopped running the show, was this... Uh, a teenage sketch comedy called uh, You Can't Do That on Television, where you would dump a bucket of green slime on anybody when they said the words, I don't know. People mainly know it, uh, know that because uh, in like three, three episodes uh, uh, featured a, a child, a Canadian, young a Canadian child performer uh, by the name of Alanis Morissette. You might have heard of her before she became famous. Um, and th th there were some other, there was like Turkey television, which would import like shows from, they would import like little weird piece of anime animation from like, uh, like the, 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 the European continent and, you know, like Norway and stuff. And then they had uh, a show called the Tomorrow People. Um, that didn't last very long on Nickelodeon. The one that really lasted on Nickelodeon was a show called Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse uh, created in the early 80s, early 90s, early 80s, and um, from the, the great uh, British animation, northern animation house, uh, Cosgrove Hall, who I guess had started making, started off making um, animated channel idents for like Granada um, and stuff like that before moving on to things like Trollton and the Wheelies. And um, Anyway, Danger Mouse was basically, it's, it's a funny animal show. It's kind of like a parody of James Bond. Uh, you can obviously tell the, the, the main source of, of the title, Danger Man, with the uh, AK secret agent, the uh, kind of spiritual forerunner of the prisoner, um, and stuff like that. 
you know, and also has like, a, I think, a kind of like a streak of the Avengers in it. Danger Mouse is a secret agent who lives, um, he has a, a little lair. Uh, he's an anthropomorphic mouse who lives in a lair, um, kind of like a secret headquarters underneath a, um, uh, underneath a, a post box. Uh, there's something important. I can never remember what it is. It's like right outside like 21B Baker Street or something like that. And he has a, um, uh, like a little hamster sidekick named Penfold. And together they save the world from the villainous plots of uh, Baron Silas Greenback, who um, our, our friend Todd Lieb now uh, at Forgotten Films Podcast described as uh, Sidney Greenstreet with a hoarse voice. They would he and um, Silas uh, Silas Greenback and his crow henchman Stiletto would always get up to some sort of evil plan, and it was up to Danger Mouse and Penfold Penfold this meek little hamster to kind of um to kind of like solve the problem within uh, you know like fifteen minutes. Um, this this made a huge impression on me as a kid. Um, it was really I always think it was a nice formative experience. It might have actually have been like the the, the source of my supposed Anglophilia uh, in that I got to hear people with accents that were different from mine use language that was different from mine because Penfold in, in particular would always say things like caw and blimey and crumbs DM, you know, it's uh but anyway uh, the, the particular episode we're looking at is from, I think the second season uh, and it's called the four trials of danger mouse um, the version I watched on Netflix, it was originally, I guess, done in like four, like three or four minute long segments. Um, but the, the kind of like a, a mashed up version, a 15 minute altogether version is the one I watched on Netflix. Uh, in this episode, uh, Baron Greenback has kidnapped Penfold and um, basically has um, uh, given Danger Mouse an ultimatum. Silas Greenback needs four ingredients to cast a, a ritual or a spell that will like allow him to like summon a monster or something like that will allow him to take over the world. So uh, Silas Green, Baron Greenbeck, the sort of person, the sort of toad who is not going to go do this himself, basically blackmails Danger Mouse into doing it. So, uh, you know, the first item he's got to go get uh, four hairs or like four hairs from a Yeti. So there's this whole little thing where he's got to go to the Himalayas and he encounters a Yeti and he's got to get that. And then the next item is um, a piece of the old, the, fo the, the, the fog monster of old London town. And the fog monster, this is something that they used, if I recall correctly, quite a bit in Danger Mouse, where they would have like a shape-shifting creature that would kind of follow them around and um, kind of like make fun of them. And like do silly things. Like at one time, the the fog monster turns into a ringing telephone. Danger Mount answers it, and a fist comes out of the receiver and punches him in the face. And I know there was another episode in the first season uh, where Baron Greenback created like a machine that will allow him to, him to get into people's dreams, and it had much kind of the same effect. It's kind of like surrealness of it. Um, and anyway, Danger Mouse um, basically manages to. Um, to convince the well, fog monster to give him a piece of himself in exchange for chocolate. That is what the fog monster of well, London Town wants more than anything in the universe. Chocolate. The third item on the list is, and if you know 
the history of Danger Mouse. When I say what the items are, you're going to know exactly where I'm going here. Are two feathers from a vampire duck. And that's the reason I chose this episode. Is It's really one of the very few that really kind of like stuck in my mind from the 80s. As this, is the ep- this is the story that introduces Count Dracula, who became such... He, he was really, if I recall correctly, he was the only other major recurring villain on Danger Mouse other than Baron Greenback. Um, Stiletto was... I don't think Stiletto ever took like full... like the full focus of an episode... Um, and, but it was, it was always like Baron Greenback. Now, Count Duckula managed to become so popular that he ended up getting his own spinoff show, which ran for several seasons, if I recall correctly. But, uh, Count Duckula is this nutty Transylvanian vampire duck who, um, the main thing he wants to do is get on television. Um, he's obsessed with showbiz. He can sing. He thinks he can sing, he thinks he can dance, he thinks he can act. Um, at one point, Danger Mouse throws him a harmonica, and he magically puts on kind of like this old British musical vaudeville suit with, you know, the one, the white suit with like red or pink stripes, he plays the harmonica. And, um, you know, but Danger Mouse can't give, Danger Mouse just does not believe that television is ready for Count Duckula, so ends up exposing him to the sun. And, uh, that's how he gets his two feathers. And then the final item is uh, a twig from a witch's broom, uh, which the broom ends up, the, the, this segment kind of ends up being kind of like a retread of the fog monster, even to the extent that uh, the, the, the twig from the broom turns itself into a bit of fog and changes shape and, you know, otherwise makes fun of Danger Mouse, but ultimately ends up deciding to, he- to help Danger Mouse because I guess he's owned by a friend of, Penfold's aunt. Because apparently Penfold is Welsh. I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have realized that. And anyway, uh, I've given away too much of the plot. But this is, this is to me what I remember loving the most about Danger Mouse. It was, it, it, it's very wacky. It, it has its own kind of peculiar, I don't know how to compare it to anything. I mean, I haven't really watched a whole lot of like British kids cartoons, I guess. Um, I don't, so I don't really know how to compare it to like other things. Like I could, the only thing I can really name, like like say like Trollton and the Wheelies. Uh, it, it has this very sort of peculiar, I guess, aesthetic to it. It's very zany. It doesn't take itself seriously. It's narrated. Um, it, it has a narrator that um, that that regularly, and they all the characters regularly break the fourth wall. Um, you know, it's it's got this. You know, it it has a zaniness to it, but it's also got it, it's also known for you know it's also got like verbal humor, and it's just it it's it's it, you know it's you know it's it. And this this really made a like a kind of big impression on me as a kid, um, into the sort of things that I thought were interesting, um, mainly vampire ducks and world, um, you know, you know, evil genius frogs. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then we wonder why I turned out the way I am. Okay. This is a show which, when I was sort of like growing up as a kid, that your parents insisted that you liked, but I never really cared for it. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh yeah, you love Danger Mouse, don't you? I don't know if they wanted to just watch Danger Mouse and just, but well, we got kids, so we got an excuse to watch kids' cartoons. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact it's voiced by Debbie Jason, who not only voiced Danger Mouse, 
He also uh, voiced Nero, who's uh, Professor Greenback's fluffy white cat caterpillar. Uh-huh. Uh, so instead of, whereas obviously in James Bond's uh, villain, he has the, the white cat. Uh, so obviously Professor Baron Greenback has a fluffy white caterpillar. And uh, David Jason also provides the voice and the narrator as well. So I think the David Jason link and the fact that he was obviously Del Boy on Only Fools and Horses um, appealed to parents. When I was like coming up, I think I was more fond of things such as like City of uh, Lost City of Gold, uh, Around the World in Eight Days for this fog, perhaps Dog Tanyon um, and the Three Musketeers, um, and certainly Trapdoor. But yeah, Dangerous, I just never got into as a kid so it was kind of curious coming back to it now all this years later and uh yeah I, I just don't i don't get this show <laughs> um the animation has not aged well for one no it hasn't the 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 fact that um I, if you have a background at all it it's a very it's just a static sheet which you can tell basically they've done so that they can easily move da- uh, Danger Mouse across with like minimal effort uh, to mm-hmm. animate this. And it's a sort of show that relies a lot on its dialogue and sort of slapsticky humor and stuff. And it's a fun It's obviously when we look at things such like Kennel K, um, who's Danger Mouse's boss, and he's like, you have things like little snippets, like he was like the first man to climb Mount Everest on a pogo stick or... Yeah, <laughs> he's a former kleptomaniac or took up tap dancing and he's a champion piano thrower uh, these things that go over your head as a kid but I suppose probably appeal to grown ups for us to sort of endure it to have those sort of uh, multiple level jokes there, kind of like what the Simpsons would now essentially mistake him for sort of instigating when we yeah, I, multi-level I, yeah I always I always wondered as a kid if Danger Mouse was what the British had instead of, like, say, Rocky and Bullwinkle. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can obviously draw the comparisons between the two, um, especially with things such as, like, um, Stiletto, the crow. The fact he has, uh-huh. like, a Cockney accent. It's essentially the same as, like, the Russian accent in Rocky and Bullwinkle. It's, 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 it's interesting because I, I, when I watched it as a kid, he had a, Stiletto had a Cockney accent. Yeah. And when I watch this episode, he has an Italian accent. He's got a Chico Marx accent. And I'm like, wait a second. No, no, that was Stiletto's Cockney. And I looked it up. Apparently, they redubbed the voice for the American market. Oh, yeah. Because, because they thought Italian Americans would get offended by uh, a Chico Marx accent. <laughs> it's. All right. It's, I, I just. Something about this one, and I think it's the fact it also featured Count Duckler, who I bloody hated even more. <laughs> oh, oh, Count Duckler, is, as we probably know, got his own spin-off show, in spin-off show uh-huh. of sorts, but they, they rejiggered his character so that he was a vampire and obsessed with tomato ketchup and yeah, all these other elements. Part. But yeah, Count Duckler was another one that your parents insisted that you liked, and I think it made it even worse the fact that it was always on uh, ITV. Because <laughs> back as a kid, you you had very minimalistic channels, there, especially for myself, who only had like four channels. So yeah. you kind of had to make do with the cartoons you got. And Count Duckler always used to be on. It's like, for Christ's sake, can we show something else? Um, that being said, I mean, 
Danger Mouse certainly has a legacy. Uh, when yeah. Channel Four over here did the hundred greatest TV kids, kids sort of TV shows of all time, it came out third. Wow! So, I mean, it was only beaten by The Muppets and The Simpsons. Wow! Um, and yeah, it's uh, Cosgrove Hall who obviously did uh, Danger Mouse. I mean, they did some absolutely great stuff. I mean, they did the original animated version of the BFG. Yeah. Um, they did the adaptations of both Weird Sisters and Soul Music for Terry Pratchett. Right. Um, their version of Soul Music, in fact, I actually made me enjoy Soul Music, the book, so much more. Um, I think mainly because music translates better into animation than it does into a book. Yeah. Um, but no, if, you want, if you're a Terry Pratchett fan, definitely check out the version of Soul Music. Um he- even into kind of like the, the modern day, I know they've shuttered since then, but they did some even some interesting stuff in like the early part of the new millennium. They did uh, they did a webcast that I guess had had initially started. They did a webcast, which if I remember, I've, I'm not 100 percent sure if this is true, but I, there's a, I, I have I had heard a story that it was basically what the BBC ended up doing instead of the Buffy spinoff that they were working on the 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 giles yeah. ripper the the that one and it ended up being a, they did a webcast i think it was called ghosts of albion with uh the actress i do not remember her name who played tara willow's girlfriend okay they did that and then later on they also did um uh, another webcast that was supposed to be the official continuation of Doctor Who um, before the Russell T. Davis revival got um, uh, got 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 announced, and that was the Scream of the Shalka, yeah. which had Richard E. Grant as the Doctor and um, Sophia Canedo as the um, as the companion, and a brief moment from Good Tenant. But yeah, I mean they've done some interesting and good stuff. But yeah, this is definitely in terms of quality of animation. This is basically like Subhana Barbera of the time period, with the looping backgrounds and all that. Yeah, and it's hard to. I mean, obviously, Cosgrove Hall, in terms of children's animation and just what they they gave to a rich kids TV. I mean, they're definitely can't be denied. I mean, they they did some fantastic stuff, as you said already. I mean, these are the people that gave us finally gave us. Christopher Lee playing Death. Yeah. Um, with with the Terry Pratchett uh, projects that they did. Um, right. And I mean, they also did um, Avenger Penguins, which was Ooh. kind of like a forerunner to Biker Mice from Mars. Okay. Um, in that you had these three biker penguins. And that, um, yeah, he kind of came out and then mysteriously Biker Mice from Mars came out shortly afterwards. So I always wondered if uh, one had seen the other. Coincidence? Possibly. Um, yeah, the episode itself. I mean, it, it has some fun moments. The, the fog, fog monster of London's kind of fun. It's uh-huh. got very much a Warner Brothers sort of feel to it. It felt like you were watching a Daffy Duck cartoon. And and I think that because I was like a big deep devotee of the Daffy Duck stuff, the Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies as a kid. So that very well could have, could have been at the time the kind of combination of slapstick and verbal humor yeah. um, 
plus kind of like the exoticness of what what are the exoticness of it being British that could have been what really kind of grabbed me as a kid but I I don't know it, it didn't do anything for you as an adult no I you have, I, I, you have result then. <laughs> I don't know maybe I, I just don't I, I just don't get it I mean yes there's there's all these things which should make it great I mean obviously we've got Danger Mouse series of like this parody, as we said already, he's like James Bond meets Danger Man, which should be yeah. awesome. I mean, he's like speaks thirty four languages, some in some extraterrestrial. Yeah, I mean, he's a master of kung moggy, <laughs> and I mean, he wears an eye patch. I mean, and has like a has like a a car that flies and and this and yeah. I my favorite bit of my favorite kind of like bit of the design though is the fact that he's got. As a mouse, he's got like an upturned. He's got a turtleneck <laughs> collar on his like skin. Yeah, that, I find that hilarious for some reason. Well, there's this scene where he's covered in mud, and then the fog monster creates a shower um, hut, and we see yeah. danger. The the hut disappears, and Danger Mouse is uh, taking a shower, and he looks embarrassed and slinks off the the camera, covering himself. And I'm thinking. This is kind of like when Donald Duck comes out of the shower and puts a, a towel on. It, I mean, isn't he naked all the time apart from his belt? Who knows? I, don't, I know it just seemed really weird to him coming up when I thought he was like essentially naked all the time, but I guess he's wearing a towel next, so... Yeah, he'd, I mean, it's like he'd be, he'd be like the only naked character because Colonel K wears a... Colonel K, the Penfold. Mm. They all wear their costumes. I mean, on a slightly darker note, um, at the start of the, the episode, we've obviously got Penfold who's been kidnapped by uh, Greenback. And he's there giving his little hostage video. And was it just me, or did you get like flashbacks to when you have like um, captured journalists in Iraq? That was, ex- I, that was exactly what I assumed that and, was supposed to be, you know, referencing there. But I mean, this is yeah, coming out that, years before that, that we even saw been... those sort of things. And he's sort of like, I am being treated well. The salad is crispy. Well. <laughs> I am being treated very well. The cockroaches are very nice <laughs> and will be my friends. That sort of thing. And um, yeah, because I mean, this was like '81. This would have been just coming off the heels, uh, uh, off the off the tails of, of of things like the 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 Iran hostage crisis, and um, you know, other things like that. Like really, kind of like the, the the rise of global terrorism. You know, coming off, coming off. And I always assumed, you know, once I was old enough to know what that was, uh, what what that meant, that I always knew it was just a deliberate reference. Maybe not in a in a sense that, like, you know, the, the, the writers are thinking, yeah, let's let's put a little bit of like, you know, realism in here. But it's just like it's just something that kind of gets soaked in from the general zeitgeist. You know, it's just kind of like as a matter of course, you're going to do something that's just bound to come up as a plot device somewhere. It, uh, yeah, it, it, it's something that I probably would have gone over my head as a kid, but like watching it now, this is so undeniable, like comparison between the two. You're like, oh, that's kind of a little close to the bone. Yeah, it's it had some funny moments, some slight sticky stuff. I, I love the fact that the broom speaks with a Welsh accent. Yeah, um, that just amused me for like no apparent reason. Um, but, yeah, I feel that... I mean, these are only five-minute episodes, but I still find it went on, like, one episode too long. 
Because it's like the four oh. trials of Danger Mouse, but it's five episodes long. <laughs> I, for some reason, that bugged me, and I have no idea why. Yeah, I think I think I think the broom the broom segment I think drags on a little bit long, but I don't know. I to me it was I to me this is like kind of classic stuff, and I just I just eat this stuff up. Yeah. Um, I guess they, they had been talking for a while about doing like a Danger Mouse revival, and I guess they've actually like gone and done it, and it's on Netflix now, um, with uh, Alexander Armstrong as Danger Mouse. And Kevin Eldon is Penfold and Stephen Fry is Colonel K. So make of that what you will. Stephen Fry just turns up everywhere now. He does. And it's I don't know, it's um he's kind of playing the intellectual card now. And it's kind of like uh, I just I don't know, he's he's a favorite of students. That's what I tend to find and uh because I was never a university student, I, I guess that's why I don't get Stephen Fry. Yeah, he's got well, he's got a cult following even here. There was a a, a singer songwriter who had actually written a song about how even though Stephen Fry is gay, mm. he would want to have his babies. Oh yeah, yeah. She even got well. She even got the chance to actually sing the song to him when he got like a an honorary degree at like a, a like a North Northeastern University. And then you could, I saw the video of that and he looked right embarrassed. He, it was hilarious to watch. Although it is kind of weird kind of seeing him. It's kind of like all this, this kind of like cult figure. And then he just shows, I guess, started showing up on like, um, got like Bones or NCIS or one of those shows. He's on Bones. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's also in Beef of Vendetta, which I thought was really great. Oh, yeah. Uh, where he's secretly gay. It's like, who'd have thought Stephen Fry secretly gay? Yeah, um, that was actually, that's one of my favorite parts of the, the, the V for Vendetta film. I mean, just on the, just on a random tangent about Stephen Fry, and that's that when he got, got married to Elliot Spencer, I believe it was, back in 2015. And uh, they were like, oh, Stephen's never been happier. And I'm thinking, yes, if I was married to some hot young thing, I'm sure you probably couldn't jackhammer the <laughs> smile off my face either, so... Yeah. So, uh, yeah, good for him, I guess. I guess Stephen Fry's all over this episode, I guess. But, uh... You're talk- you talking about his, uh, him on, uh, I was briefly mentioned him on, uh, the young ones during the interim, but yeah, Stephen Fry. Cool. Have we got anything else to bring up about Danger Mouse at all? No, oh, I think we probably talked too much about Danger Mouse. But, uh... Danger Mouse, I love Danger Mouse, don't get me wrong, but uh, Danger Mouse is not exactly deep entertainment. <laughs> it's certainly something. It, it, makes, it is. If anything, it makes me want to go back and like look at the kids' shows of that particular era. Because obviously uh-huh. we get, for the most part, it's all like the action kids' shows. So things like Key Man and she and Cops and those right. sort of action uh, sort of shows that you kind of forget things like, as we said, Lost City of Gold, uh, Phileas Fogg's Around the World in 80 Days, and like the sort of like French and um, Swedish uh, things, so things like the Moomins. Right. Um, or the Wombles. Yeah, things over here, like you already mentioned, like She-Ra and He-Man, yeah. uh, Thundercats, G.I. Joe. You know the the the, the old uh, one two of uh, the, the original Transformers cartoon and GoBots yeah. the 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 Union knockoff. Yeah. Uh, 
another show that really kind of like owed a lot to like the James Bond setup, Inspector Gadget. Yes, Inspector Gadget was another of those shows where I could either take it or leave it. I think it's I enjoyed the the character Bones the dog. Yeah. Um, but the actual main character himself, I thought it was just so incompetent, he annoyed me as a child, which really says yeah. a lot. And the fact that they never showed Dr. Claw's face. <laughs> um, yeah. But saying that, if you want to hear a really great impression of uh, Dr. Claw, make sure you tap up Jake Lewitt at Live vs. Film. Ooh. As he does an absolutely spot on one. We did a, there was a celebrity version of Lamperty. But yeah. Check out the uh, accent. And he does a round of questions as Dr. Claw. And it is pitch perfect. I, I was supposed to go on there and play zombie Ronald Reagan. Okay. Uh, constantly shifting into zombie zombie Jack Nicholson because I can't. I, my Reagan always shifts to to, to Nicholson after a while. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I had a work thing and I wasn't able to make okay. it. Okay. That's a shame because I was really looking forward to that one. I also found out that uh, Tobley now uh, forgotten films has only recently discovered the Wombles. And I thought Ooh. everyone knew who the Wombles were, but apparently not. I know the name the Wombles. I've never seen them. Yeah, you know, upper ground, underground, wombling free. The Wombles and Wombledon, wombling free. Making use of oh. things uh, that folks leave behind. Interesting. I'll show you the Wombles. We're, tell you what, we're, when they, I'll put it on the board now. And uh, one of these episodes, <laughs> we'll sit down and watch the Wombles. There you go. There's a fun afternoon, two grown men watching the Wombles. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, that's another part of my childhood we'll cover on another episode, but uh, yeah. Right, so I mean, that brings us childhood. that brings us <laughs> to the end of another edition of uh, TV Good Sleep Bad. Obviously, next episode, what do you, uh, you bring to the table, Lackey? Uh, we're going to do uh, the pilot episode of um, a little, little kind of cult, I guess you'd call it a vampire soap opera. Uh, the vampire soap opera from the 90s that wasn't the Dark Shadows revival. I think it ran for like eight or nine episodes on the Fox network in the United States. It was called Kindred the Embraced, kind of known in cult circles as it was the TV show that was based on the the, the tabletop role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, uh, produced by Aaron Spelling. It starred uh, C. Thomas Howell as a vampire-hunting cop in San Francisco. Um, I remember watching a few episodes of the show when it was, cause I was like a gigantic role playing game peak, like in 1994. Um, I'd still be now if I could get anybody to like actually play, but, um, yeah, anyway, so I remember watching it. I'm kind of interested in seeing how it holds up and it will loop in with, it will tie into the whole, um, you know, Halloween thing, you know, vampires, <laughs> you know, cool. For myself, still staying on the Halloween sort of theme we've got going, I'm going to be bringing an episode of the sort of spiritual sequel to The Young Ones, and that's Bottom. Yes! <laughs> I'm sorry, I've never seen Bottom, and I've always wanted to. Okay, this is a show my mother hated, which meant that me and my brother loved, and pretty much every kid that we knew at school loved Bottom as well. And I mean, this would be the show that you would set the video player to record because it started at nine o'clock and you had to get back from scouts. So you would like encourage your dad to drive really, really fast to get that 15 minute drive back. So you could watch bottom yeah. on uh, BBC two. But uh, we're looking at the second episode of season three, uh, which is a Halloween episode called terror. This is an episode which features carrots of doom and a cattle prod. I'm just going to leave it at that because bottom is a grown up 
foul-mouthed, sleazy, slapsticky comedy uh, from two of the sort of punk pioneers of 80s, early 90s comedy, A. Damonson and Rick Mail. Um, as I said, they worked together on The Young Ones and then they came together again to do Bottom um, as part of this fantastic comedy partnership. And yeah, this particular episode is just one of my favorite episodes of the uh, series. So I'm very excited that your first, uh, obviously the first episode I show you is going to be uh, this one, Lackey. So uh, I'm going to be really that, interested that to is, see what you make of this one. That That is kind of like the, kind of like the alternative or the punk comedy scene of like the early 80s before like say Richard Curtis like gave it all up to do tepid romantic comedies and Bridget Jones movies <laughs> um, you know like the early stuff like um you know young ones uh we we got a, uh, we got comic strip over here ran on MTV so did the young ones and just other stuff and you know it was one of the things I was really really excited um uh, you, you know when um you know when when we got the Colin Baker Doctor Who's over here and they ran Revelation of the Daleks because Alexi Sale is in that. Yeah. You know, so it's like all these these sort of like, you know, the, the, that kind of scene, the you know, the the whole young one scene, not just Edmund Edmondson and Edmonton and uh uh Mayall, but also uh, you know, Chris Ryan, Nigel Planer, Alexi Sale, Rowan Atkinson, the whole Black Adder crew. Um just some of that stuff. It's- from that period, and even like the early Dawn French, uh, Jennifer Saunders stuff, yeah, is, is amazing. I think this is the thing. It's funny how these sort of outlaw comics at the time have gone on to be like respectable actors. Like as you said, we got Jennifer Connelly, uh, French and Saunders, obviously. Yeah, yeah. we got A. Davidson, uh, Rick Mail. You got um, Rowan Atkinson and Tony. Tony Robinson. Tony Robinson. Tony Robinson now like legitimate uh, archaeologist. He, he does time team over here in the UK. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, Tony Robinson is fantastic because of the fact that his career has basically revolved around doing things that interest him. So yeah. he liked doing comedy, and um, that's why he obviously did like Black Adder, and he then had kids, so he did um, Made Marion and Merry Men, and he was like, uh-huh. like, I like history, so he does time team. <laughs> and does these yeah. historical documentaries now? So, uh... but but yeah, it's really interesting to like just trace these all these careers of all these figures. Van Elton, you know, going on to do like jukebox musicals. The, the, I remember when I was in Britain uh, back in '04, there were posters all over the place for the the Queen musical. Yeah. We will rock you. It's like by Van Elton. And it's like by one of the guys that wrote Blackadder. Yeah, you know, and, and how like it's like or or things like um like Tim McInerney. Uh, the Percy Darling from Blackadder showing up on Game of Thrones this year. And, um, and I think the other standout know. one, I mean, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, Again, yeah. two names that you don't associate with punk comedy, but they're the ones doing, like, the parody of uh, Gordon Gecko where they just shout, damn it, all the time. Yeah. Uh, but they were kind of like, they really were the ones who were able to, they tapped into that yuppie 80s greed. Especially, I think they were the ones who really sort of skewered that sort of uh, the end of the eighties, and sort of they were like just so spot on with like the social sad eye when you watch it. And then obviously they went on to do classy affair like Jeeves and Worcester, right? But uh, yeah, I think we're gonna no doubt talk some more about uh, British comedy oh, yeah. in the late eighties uh, when we. The, the great. I was uh, the last thing I think Rick Mayall did before he passed away. 
Uh, I actually ended up reviewing it for the Nightmare Gallery a couple of years ago. It was a weird science science fiction movie about it was about weird science. It was science fiction, but it was like about a guy who'd one of these people wanted like cheat death or like cure cancer or something like that. And Rick Mayall played like the director of this medical institute, like the the main character's boss, who was the no, you can't do this and play God and they'll pull our funding. That type of character. And I'm like, I, if I did not, if, if I'd gone into the film, if I hadn't gone into the film knowing Rick Mayall was in it, I would never have recognized him. But yeah, it was just Rick Mayall. Amazing. Bigger than Hitler, better than Christ. Yep. As his autobiography told us. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was just an amazing time for comedy and just an amazing scene to come out of. And I'm always up for like, Stuff like that. So I am going to be on the edge of my seat. Awesome. Um, but yeah, that wraps up uh, another edition, as we said. Uh, thank you all for listening. As always, make sure that uh, you leave it, hit us up on uh, on the old iTunes. Uh, there you can hit that subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. Maybe leave us some nice words or a rating. That's always appreciated. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, which is at TV Good Sleep Bad. We are also on Facebook as well. Just type in TV Good Sleep Bad, and it should come up there as well. But yeah, I mean that's that's about about it from ourselves. Naki, uh, if you got anything you want to plug before we go, I mean I'm going to Fantastic Fest next week, but I don't know if this this is going to come out before or after Fantastic Fest, and I'll I'll be coming out of the um the the, the Nightmare Gallery will be coming out of hibernation for some coverage of. Uh, Fantastic Fest. I don't know. I don't know to what extent it will not go back into hibernation after Fantastic Fest because my personal life is still kicking my ass, and basically, I I feel like you know I feel like a Hugo Award, and all the nominees are Vox Day. <laughs> so, um, right now. So, but yeah, Fantastic Fest and uh, stuff. So, I guess take a look at the Nightmare Gallery and. If there's some fantastic fest reviews there, read them. Nice. Um, well, again, as always, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon. So keep it strange. Bye bye.